Blog Talk Radio. Mama 
Mamba Mubiai, Mulubawaki Tanda. Wawaka Yembe, Wena Menshi. and welcome back uh, to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Uh, Today is Sunday, September 12th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in for another edition uh, of our program later on. Uh, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll have dispatches on the visit uh, by the Economic Community of West African States ECOWAS delegation to the Republic of Guinea uh, for consultations uh, with the military officers that overthrew President Alpha Conde uh, one week ago today. The government of Ethiopia is continuing to accuse the United States of involvement in its internal affairs. We'll have details on that as well. Tunisian President Kais Saeed has suggested that he wants to change the national constitution of the North African state. And the Director General of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, Dr. John Nkangasan, has criticized the Western nations for failing to meet their own commitments to adequately supply COVID-19 vaccines to uh, underdeveloped uh, states. 
In the second hour, we look in depth uh, at the current political and security situation in the West African state of Guinea in the aftermath of a military coup and the suspension of Conakry uh, from ECOWAS and the African Union. Finally, uh, we examine other major issues impacting Africa and the world. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. So stay tuned. Uh, we'll take a musical interlude uh, with uh, music from the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, during uh, the early to mid-1970s. Let's listen in. Come 
Oh, 
welcome back. And uh, that was music uh, from uh, Congo. And uh, it is uh, marketed as uh, music from both uh, Congo, uh, Brazzaville, as well as Congo, Kinshasa. Of course, the Democratic Republic of Congo, Kinshasa, and the Republic of Congo, Brazzaville. But uh, going through uh, this uh, compilation, sounds uh, heavily weighted uh, towards Brazzaville, where the musicians are just as good, even though uh, they may not be as well-known internationally. Some of the bands uh, from the top of this uh, compilation we heard over the last hour, Orchestra Super Boboto, uh, of course, and also Orchestra Dito Bantu, also the Orchestra Leas, and Orchestra Kavasha. And, of course, a uh, compilation of music uh, from, uh, in all likelihood, uh, Congo, Brazzaville, from 1970 to uh, 1976. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for Sunday, uh, September 12th, uh, 2021. We're broadcasting live from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswatch segment. Our lead story, of course, again uh, in this uh, broadcast is dealing with the current political and security situation in the West African state of Guinea. Uh, Earlier yesterday, a delegation from West Africa's main pool and economic bloc uh, met uh, Guinea's ousted President Alpha Conde and members of the junta that overthrew him, uh, hoping to steer the country back towards a civilian-led constitutional regime. Conde, who had been in power since uh, 2010, has been detained uh, by the junta. The National Rally and Development Committee, the CNRD, since it staged the coup last Sunday. We met the members of the CNRD, and we also met the former head of state, uh, that's according to Jean-Claude Bro the president of the Economic Community of West African States ECOWAS Commission, told reporters in the capital of Conakry, because we are mandated that by other heads of state, we are going to make a report. He did not provide further details about the discussions. Uh, ECOWAS suspended Guinea's membership on Wednesday, uh, but stopped short of imposing further sanctions, saying it was waiting for the results of the mission uh, to Conakry. The coup... Uh, The third push uh, since April in West and Central Africa has intensified fears of a slide back towards military rule in the region, which had until recently been starting to shed its coup belt uh, reputation. Uh, The African Union-backed ECOWAS uh, up on Friday suspended uh, Guinea uh, from all AU activities and decision-making bodies as well. Uh, The ECOWAS delegation also included Canadian Foreign Minister Shirley Ayoko-Bachwe and Burkina Faso Foreign Minister Alpha Berry. They plan to press the junta to appoint a credible civilian prime minister as soon as possible to help Guinea back towards constitutional order. A high-ranking regional official told the international press on Thursday. The junta is led by Colonel Mamadou Dumbouye, Uh, a former officer of the French Foreign Legion. It has appointed army officers to head regional administrations 
and on Thursday ordered the central bank and other banks to freeze all government accounts in order to secure state assets. In other news, the international community uh, is expected uh, to play a constructive role in the current situation of Ethiopia and should refrain from meddling in the country's internal affairs and condemns uh, the TTLF's evil acts, the group's uh, former member said, and that uh, is from an article published in Herald. It goes on to say that approached by the Ethiopian press agency, the EPA, TPLF's former member turned vocal critic, uh, Lule Halimariam, stated that citizens must act as diplomats for their country and request the international community to hand off from Ethiopia and label TPLF as a terrorist group. He said that Ethiopians have uh, to strengthen our internal unity and fight our enemies together besides serving as a diplomat for our motherland and asking the international community not to meddle in our domestic affairs. If we can't ruin this evil force in unison, our values would be undermined. As to Lele, uh, the people of Ethiopia have to fight the TPLF clique in all available means, including in diplomatic and battlefields, and everyone should stand to defend the interests of his country of birth in the international arenas. Each state of Ethiopia must reveal their firm stance against TPLF to the U.S. Embassy, United Nations Secretary Office, African Union, and other international institutions, he noted, adding that such an intense campaign is crucial to reverse the international community's bias against Ethiopia. Community leaders, elders, scholars, and other influential individuals have equal responsibility uh, to alert uh, the global community of the TPLS uncounted evil acts against the people of Ethiopia. Noting different scholars uh, pledge petitions against the TPLF and submit uh, to international organizations, Lillet indicated that there is no better time than now for Ethiopians to stand together to keep national sovereignty and fight unjust Western pressure providing accurate and verifiable information about the destructive activities of the outlawed group to global actors would have paramount importance in this regard. Utilizing different social media platforms to counter TPLF Associates' information war and being proactive in agendas uh, setting is also something worth equal consideration. The people of Ethiopia should consolidate their unity more than ever and the newly established government would have better capacity and hope uh, to make Ethiopia's future bright, he concluded. And you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And uh, other news uh, taking place uh, across uh, the African continent, of course, uh, in the North African state, of Tunisia, uh, the president, Kais uh, Saeed, uh, has, of course, been attempting uh, to institute reforms uh, irrespective of the broad opposition uh, that he is facing uh, inside the country. Of course, uh, news reports uh, coming out of Tunisia in recent weeks uh, talked about the president's cons- consolidation of power. Now, uh, the Tunisian uh, president,
Now, uh, the Tunisian president, uh, Kais Saeed, announced uh, just uh, earlier today, announced uh, last evening uh, the appointment of, quote, as soon as possible of a new government and mentioned a future reform of the Constitution uh, during a walkabout in Tunis. And uh, you're listening to uh, the Pan-African Newswire uh, segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I'm your host, uh, Abayomi Azikwe. And, of course, uh, we're here uh, every week uh, bringing you uh, some of the most updated and advanced uh, information uh, in regard uh, to developments on the African continent and, uh, indeed, uh, throughout uh, the international community. And, of course, um, we are here uh, on a weekly basis uh, bringing you, of course, uh, features uh, which deal uh, with numerous uh, developments uh, that have been taking place, of course, across uh, the African continent and, uh, indeed, uh, the international community in general. And uh, the Pan-African Newswire is one aspect of uh, that uh, development. Uh, it is a seven-day-a-week, 24-hour-a-day uh, uh, news uh, outlet that can be accessed uh, by people uh, throughout uh, the international community. And uh, uh, <clears throat> all you need to do uh, is uh, develop uh, the web uh, capability uh, by logging on to panafricannews.blogspot.com and uh, by doing that, of course, you can have access uh, to uh, the uh, Pan-African Newswire. And uh, not only um, can you have access to the Pan-African Newswire, uh, you can also have access uh, to the Pan-African Journal as well. Now, back to the story on uh, Tunisia. A new government uh, will be formed as soon as possible after selecting the most honest personalities, and that's according to President Saeed. Uh, he said this to the Wanania and Sky News uh, Arabia television networks after strolling under guard on Wakiba Avenue, uh, which crosses the heart of the capital of Tunis. On July 25th, uh, Mr. Saeed dismissed the prime minister, suspended the activities of parliament, and also took over the judiciary for a month of renewal before extending these measures on the 24th of August until further notice. On Saturday evening, he he did not give a precise date uh, for the formation of government, adding, quote, we are continuing the search for personalities who uh, will assume our responsibility uh, in this regard. President Saeed also referred to the 2014 Constitution saying that he respects it, but we can introduce amendments to the text. According to him, quote, the Tunisian people rejected the Constitution, unquote, and quote, constitutions are not eternal, unquote. It is therefore necessary in his eyes, quote, to amend while respecting the Constitution, unquote, while keeping in mind that, quote, sovereignty belongs in recent days. Many media outlets have speculated that a provincial government would soon be announced followed by a revision of the Constitution, which will then be submitted to universal suffrage via a referendum 
for a new legislative election. And the images are posted on Facebook page of the president. The head of state can be seen walking down Bordiba Avenue, cheered by the crowd who sang the national anthem before stopping in front of the microphones of television stations. And finally, uh, the African Union's health monitor has accused world leaders uh, just three days ago of falling uh, short uh, in their pledge uh, to share coronavirus vaccines with poor nations and their failure risk making the disease endemic. Africa is facing a COVID-19 resurgence as it lags in the global vaccination drive with just 3.18% of its 1.3 billion population fully inoculated. Quote, we cannot continue to politicize this situation by making statements that we do not follow through with firm commitments. Uh, John Nkangasong, head of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, said, he went on to say that, quote, pledges do not put vaccines into people's arms, unquote. Across the continent, cases are rising at an alarming rate. More than 40 countries are experiencing a third wave of infections, and six are grappling with their fourth. Even as life in many wealthy nations is returning to normal thanks to high inoculation figures. Facing anger over unequal access to inoculations, a group of seven industrialized powers pledged in June to provide a billion COVID vaccines with developing nations, up from 130 million promised in February. The G7 plan also included commitments to avert future pandemics, slashing time taken to develop and license vaccines to, to under 100 days, reinforcing global surveillance and strengthening the World Health Organization. But in Kangasong uh, said the doses have yet to materialize. Quote, we have not seen a billion vaccines, unquote, he told an online press briefing. Quote, we are not, as a continent, very keen in any definition of vaccine diplomacy that would mean people make statements in the media that are not backed with reality, unquote, he added. The World Health Organization on Wednesday urged rich nations to give priority to getting first shots uh, for health workers and vulnerable populations in poor nations over supplying boosters to their own citizens. It is estimated that Africa will need 1.5 billion vaccine doses to immunize 60% of its inhabitants and achieve some level of herd immunity. Quote, we are not going to win this war against the pandemic if we do not vaccinate everybody at speed, unquote, said Dr. Nkengasong. He went on to say that, quote, otherwise we should brace ourselves to live with this virus as an endemic disease going forward. And with that, uh, we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. And uh, concluding uh, this segment, uh, we want to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998, and since then it has published thousands of articles and dispatches in newspapers, on magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source 
on Pan-African and Global Affairs, if you'd like to log on uh, to uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go uh, to our website, And um, we'll take a uh, musical interlude. We'll be back with more of our program for this week. Welcome back, and uh, that was uh, uh, One Hundred Proof Ace and Soul with a tune entitled uh, Too Many Cooks. And, of course, uh, we've been following uh, the current uh, political and security uh, crisis in the West African state of Guinea. And, of course, uh, just a week ago, uh, there was a military uh, coup d'etat, and it turns out, uh, as in other cases in West Africa, 
that the coup makers uh, had very close ties to French as well as U.S. Uh, military structures, uh, the Pentagon, the uh, French Foreign Legion. So, of course, uh, this is a continuation of the external influence of imperialism uh, shaping and directing uh, developments uh, that are taking place uh, on uh, the African continent. And, of course, uh, we're going to uh, focus uh, on uh, what is happening in Guinea. And, of course, you can read uh, the Pan-African Newswire, uh, and we have been uh, posting articles on a daily basis uh, dealing with the situation uh, in Guinea. And um, so if you log on to panafricannews.blogspot.com, uh, you can uh, read uh, those articles and, of course, uh, have guides uh, to reading other material uh, that, of course, is uh, very important. And uh, right now we want to move into a report uh, that was done just three days ago on uh, ECOWAS's suspension of uh, the uh, so-called National Committee for Reconciliation and Development, the coup regime in Guinea-Conakry. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome to the program. I'm Layo Adedoke. The economic community of West African states has called for coup leaders to release Guinea's ousted president, Alpha Conde, and return to constitutional order. At their virtual meeting held on Wednesday, the bloc also suspended the country. Guinea has been suspended from West Africa's main political and economic bloc following the weekend military coup that ousted President Alpha Conde. The 15-member Economic Community of West African States held a virtual summit on Wednesday to discuss the situation. Burkina Faso's Foreign Minister Alpha Barry said ECOWAS was demanding a return to constitutional order and the immediate release of Conde and others who were arrested. A high-level mission should be sent by ECOWAS to Guinea as of tomorrow in order to speak with the new authorities. And after this mission, ECOWAS should be able to re-examine their positions. But for now, it has been decided to suspend Guinea from all the decision-making instances. We ask that this decision be endorsed by the African Union and the United Nations. Barry did not announce any immediate economic sanctions, as ECOWAS did with Mali's coup last year. Some experts say ECOWAS's leverage over Guinea is limited, as it's not landlocked like Mali, nor is it a member of the West African Currency Union. Guinea's coup leader, Mamadi Doumbouya, has promised a unified transitional government, but has not yet said when or how this will happen. At least eight political prisoners were released on Tuesday evening. Many had campaigned against a constitutional change, which allowed Conde to stand for a third term. The military has also been dismantling fourth posts. They were used at the height of the protest against the constitutional change, house police and soldiers. Located in different neighborhoods of the capital, Conakry, they facilitated rapid responses. Mbuya has also met with heads of Guinea's various military branches and he hopes to unify the country's armed forces under the Junta's command. 
In the meantime, Nigeria is challenging the economic community of West African states to take proactive steps to prevent coup d'etats on the continent. Vice President Professor Yemi Oshibajo says the unconstitutional seizure of power in any form is unacceptable and has no place in the 21st century. He stated this while representing President Muhammadu Buhari at a virtual extraordinary session of the authority of heads of state and government of ECOWAS member states on the political developments in the republics of Guinea and Mali. Uh, we, of course, are greatly saddened by the events of the 5th September 2021, which culminated in the arrest and detention of President Alpha Conde, the dissolution of the Guinean government and the suspension of the constitution, a military takeover of the authority and affairs of the government of Guinea. And we join all well-meaning global leaders to express in the strongest terms the condemnation of the Nigerian government of this unconstitutional change of government, a development that we believe could seriously destabilize the Republic of Guinea. We fully endorse the recommendations made by the President of the ECOWAS Commission, but let me also state unequivocally that the unconstitutional seizure of power in any shape or form is simply unacceptable. And that what happened in Guinea is a brazen disregard for the provisions of the ECOWAS Protocol on Democracy and Good Governance, which clearly states that every accession to power must be made through free, fair, and transparent elections. In finding a lasting solution to this development, we believe that the military junta must ensure the physical safety of President Alpha Conde and all those detained along with him. The United Nations says her team is on ground and at the regional level are continuing to monitor the situation closely in Guinea. UN spokesperson Stefan Dujaric says the resident coordinator is coordinating efforts to share regular updates and to communicate with key international partners. Our UN team on the ground says, um, and at the regional level are continuing to monitor the situation closely. Our resident coordinator there, Vincent Martin, um, is coordinating efforts to share regular updates and communicate with key international partners. Our team on the ground also remains committed to supporting the country, including in its ongoing efforts to tackle multiple impacts of COVID, while also monitoring the Ebola situation, which was declared just over three months ago. African Affairs Analyst Alester Wilcox joins us now for more on this. Thank you so much for joining us on the program. Now, a high-level envoys to be sent to the country to find solutions. What do you think? Do you think this suspension is enough to bring Guinea back to democracy? Well, it has always been the rhetoric. Every time there is a um, coup d'etat in Africa, and uh, the first thing you get is... Um, after delegations and envoys being made to go and discuss. Uh, we had this situation in Mali, and that has solved it properly. Uh, it's the same rhetoric that we keep having, but if something differently is done about uh, this issue of uh, coup and uh, and the of government, might just continue. At the end of the day, there will not be real pressure. So I'm not satisfied with what is happening. I'm certainly satisfied. 
It's going to be the same mentoring, except it will be some additional stimulus to the school members in English for them to be good. If not, it just be the same, the same mentoring, the same daily the same decisions, and at the end of the day, our country will not be returned to power, and there will be a new beginning. Nobody don't know how long that new order will last. So a lot of watchers tell you from for free that it's just the same of thing. Same thing as well as fact that it's not much. The sanctions are not there, and so there's no deterrence for anybody that wants to carry out a cool cloth in Africa. Well, let's just take a look at the events that led to Sunday School. Many have been frustrated, you know, by last year's constitutional change that allowed President Alpha Conde to run for third term. So, in the meantime, the news that the Constitution would, would, would now be scrapped and replaced in public consultation has been received well. In the meantime, with this uh, new military leaders, can these military men be trusted to actually do what they say? Every unconstitutional level of power in Africa comes with, comes with a promise or a popular uh, a popular subject that is of dissatisfaction to the people. Of course, there must be a reason the joint to take over power. And one of the and the reason being the fact that uh, they felt what uh, Afakonde did last year was wrong and very very harassing a lot of people. But the fact remains that uh, the, is that the the option? Is could the option? Now they have taken over and they are promising to change the constitution. So after then, what next? For anybody, it, look, the civil authority in, 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 in any country is the only authority that has the right to change things as they want to. Now, if, unfortunately, other countries have been ruled by people, ruled by, by persons who make themselves God over their nations. And so the, the, there is a lot of um, leadership, leadership dysfunctionality in terms of structure in Africa. So uh, every president seems to have to be wielding power over every other citizen. But that cannot continue. And there the often will not be some uh, adventurous junkers taking over and writing on that principle. Of course, there must be a reason. And the reason being the fact that the constitution was illegally amended. But it was amended through whatever democratic means. So, but the coup itself is an aberration because the constitution does not provide for a coup to end another illegality. You cannot put illegality upon illegality. And so that is why African nations need to still stand up Need to come together and really find something else other than suspension, other than a few discussions here and there. Maybe it's just like what happened in Gambia. Maybe the Gambia solution should have been should should, should, should be there as the back and call of African leaders. The Gambia solution via military military action is being threatened against anybody that wants to undermine democratic system. Then that might also be deterrent. But these discussions, uh, delegations, suspensions, it will not achieve whatever objective it is. It will be there, it will change the constitution, and the man will change from military and become civilian, and it is very business as usual. Oh, and just... and that, that, that doesn't get to change in any time soon. Well, just very quickly, looking ahead now, what do you think lies ahead for, uh, ahead for you know, Guinea's future? Well, Guinea has suffer a bit of economic uh, um, sanctions. Because the sanctions, the strength will not affect the leaders, but affect the few of the citizens because of the economic sanction. Yes, that, that will happen. Politically, there will be some dislocation, the is suspended, the non-electorist, the position, 
they will not try to create a new constitution. That will not take maybe years to create a new constitution. They maybe will still remain there. That has been the that, that has been the that has been the, that has been the, the same pattern over. And then before you know it, the culture will now resign from the military and have contest as a civilian and still perpetrate himself in office. Now my, my my solution is that look and it's just I said African is the military option in removing illegal uh, jobs and take over power. Nothing will, nothing will change. Apart from big countries like Nigeria, Ghana, Cote d'Ivoire, that maybe such cannot happen and then it just be light, light low. But it, it can't go out. With the way things are going, anybody, any opportunist can, can, can take such opportunity and the permanent illegality in terms of removal of power. Because you get a close, you get a from the citizenry until they begin to show their own their own uh, fans, when they bring their own, their own fans, and then they start complaining. So, this drastic must be done. Not just discussion, not just suspension, something drastic must be done in order, and it's only not only West Africa, from other Muslim bodies to bring enough pressure to bear, not giving them different space on the full leaders so that they know that they are not welcome anywhere around the world. All right, then. Thank you so much, uh, Alastair Wilcox, African Affairs Analyst. Thank you for having me. Well, moving on to other stories, an outbreak of meningitis has been declared in the northern eastern region of the Democratic Republic of Congo, with more than 120 people killed. The first cases were reported in July, and more than 100 people are receiving treatment at home and in health facilities. Well, the World Health Organization says that the outbreak has been difficult to contain because of the community's belief that it is linked to witchcraft. Meanwhile, the samples shipped to France for screening found out that the bacterium responsible for this outbreak had the potential to cause larger epidemics. WHO and DR Congo health officials have now deployed a team to the northern eastern province of Chopo to contain the situation. Well, Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has declared the drought affecting parts of the country a national disaster. The drought has affected 10 out of 47 counties with at least 2 million Kenyans affected. The President directed the Treasury and the Interior Ministry to support the victims. He also announced this after meeting leaders from the affected arid and semi-arid areas in the north of the country which have received less than 50% of their average rainfall. The residents of the affected areas, who are mostly pastoralists, are facing hunger and some of their livestock have died. The World Health Organization is calling for a global moratorium on booster COVID-19 vaccine doses until at least the end of the year to enable every country to vaccinate at least 40% of its population. WHO head Dr. Tedros Ghebreyesus had a month ago called for a global moratorium on booster doses until the end of September to prioritize vaccinating the most at-risk people around the world who are yet to receive their first dose but there has been little change in the global situation since then. A month ago, I called for a global moratorium on booster doses at least until the end of September to prioritize vaccinating the most at-risk people around the world who are yet to receive their first dose. There has been little change in the global situation since then. 
So today, I'm calling for an extension of the moratorium until at least the end of the year to enable every country to vaccinate at least 40% of its population. We've seen incredibly compelling data from high uh, coverage countries, high income countries, producing countries. So where they're getting high coverage with these vaccines now, Ganila, you've seen it. Um, they are still having COVID cases, but their COVID deaths are plummeting. In the countries with the low coverage, they are still having high rates of COVID deaths. And this is what we need to change and change as rapidly as possible. Should there be a moratorium on boosters? Absolutely. Should there be a moratorium on vaccinating people at low risk of severe disease or death? Absolutely. Um, so our job as the World Health Organization, the Director General at the top of this, is to make sure that we call for equity for these products on every single way possible. The Democratic Republic of the Congo declared an outbreak of meningitis in the northeastern Shopo province with 261 suspected cases and 129 deaths reported. Health authorities have deployed an initial emergency team and WHO is supporting the response. More than 100 patients are already receiving treatment at home and in health centers. WHO has provided medical supplies and plans to deploy more experts and resources. Morocco's Islamist Justice and Development Party, PJD, has suffered a crushing defeat in parliamentary elections, clumping from first to eighth place in the country. The Liberal National Rally of Independence party gained most seats following, followed by another Liberal Party, the Authenticity and Modernity Party, which is seen as close to the monarchy. According to the preliminary results announced on Thursday, both parties took 97 and 82 seats respectively of the 395 seat parliament, while the centre-right Isal party got 78 seats. The PJD only got 12 seats from the 125 seats it had in the outgoing assembly. Elected politicians in Morocco have only limited powers as key decisions remain in the hands of King Mohammed VI. All the rift between Somalia's Prime Minister and President Abdullahi Fomajo appears to be intensifying with the latest sacking of the Security Minister. Prime Minister Mohamed Rubble sacked the minister late on Wednesday, but President Mohamed Abdullahi Fomajo has rejected the move. Mr. Rubble has since replaced the Security Minister. On Thursday, President Fomajo called the move unconstitutional. Now, this is the second time the Prime Minister and President are differing on appointments. The Prime Minister last weekend sacked the spy chief and the President reinstated him, then later appointed him on a new role. The two leaders have in the past differed publicly on policies. President Fermaggio banned agreements with foreign entities until after elections, but the Prime Minister went ahead to sign agreements in his Kenya visit last month. Well, in the meantime, Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, has threatened to withdraw the country's troops from the African Union's peacekeeping mission in Somalia. He issued the warning following an escalating row between Somalia's president and prime minister. President Museveni made a similar threat in 2011 to push Somali leaders to resolve their differences. Uganda joined the AU for 
force in Somalia in 2007, and it has just over 6,000 troops in the 22,000-strong force. Well, Her Royal Highness, the Duchess of Cornwall, has been announced as the first patron of the Mirabal Center, a sexual assault referral center based inside the Lagos University Teaching Hospital, Ikeja. Conveying the good wishes of Her Royal Majesty during a visit to the center in the company of the management of Lassut, British Deputy High Commissioner to Nigeria, Ambassador Ben Lewin Jones said the Duchess was proud to shine the spotlight on the center's work towards providing free medical and psychosocial support for victims of rape, Alexis. sexual assault and gender-based violence which align with Britain's efforts towards achieving SDG goals on gender equality. We're here to um, celebrate the significance of uh, Royal Highness the Duchess of Cornwall being a patron to the Mirabel Centre. And really that shows her commitment to tackling these incredibly difficult issues uh, of sexual violence and sexual assault in Nigeria. Uh, and her understanding of that came in part from the royal visit in 2018. And we really hope, and she really hopes, that patronage can help elevate the profile of the Mirabel Centre get still more people to come forward uh, with financial support, get still more victims to come forward because there are so many people out there who need help and really help the Mirabel Centre reach still more people uh, and raise the, issue, raise the profile of these issues and help prevent some of these issues from occurring in the first place. Alexis, she's a founder of the centre, Itoro Ezianaba, who was clearly appreciative of the Duchess's interest in the centre's work, said despite successes, challenges of victimisation and stigmatisation persists after rehabilitation. Support services are not available for survivors of rape and sexual violence. We do what we can here at the Mirabel Center, but when we make referrals or they go back to the larger society, the stigmatization continues. There's a low level of um, prosecution. The um, victimization in the community also continues because at times the alleged perpetrator is, um, is a celebrity, is a rich person or is a known person. And if the survivor is not of the same economic class, it becomes a serious problem because others victimize and say, okay, why don't you take this 100,000 now? Why don't you take this 2,000 now? So that's pressure, societal pressure to withdraw cases and not follow up. That's another kind of challenge that we face with our survivors. Artifacts looted by British troops from Ethiopia in 1868 have been returned to the Ethiopian embassy in London. The embassy says they include an imperial shield, a Bible and crosses. Well, the foundation purchased the items through a UK-based auction house and private dealers before handing them over to the embassy. In the meantime, the embassy says it will now arrange for the artifacts to be returned to Ethiopia. Now let's go to South Africa, where five young people from Cape Town's Langup Township squeeze into wetsuits for a snorkeling lesson with 33-year-old Zendile Ndlovu. She's the first black free dive coach. They are turning the tide on decades of apartheid history in which water sports were reserved mainly for wealthy whites. Trying snorkeling while on holiday in Bali in 2016, and Global fell in love with the ocean. 
she swiftly got her school bus driver's certificate the following year. Last year, she received an instructor's certificate in free diving with no equipment. Today, she's South Africa's first black diving coach, turning the tide on decades of apartheid history in which water sports were reserved for wealthy whites. In becoming a freediving instructor, I knew for the first time ever that this passion needed expansion. And the water space has not always been diverse, and I wanted to create a space where diverse representation in the ocean space is possible. Established in 2020, the foundation currently pays for the lessons, but is looking for funders to ensure its longevity. The 33-year-old gave up her own consultancy business, which she had run for five years after being employed in the corporate services sector previously. South Africa's first female free dive instructor, the children learn how to bite down onto the snorkel mouthpiece when breathing face down in the water, among other skills. This is teach us to swim and to, to, know, to, know, to know everything in, in in that in the sea and we saw we saw octopus fish shark my joy is the moment when one of the kids says oh look it's a fish or oh look it's a starfish because it means that they have transcended the fear space to actually look beneath the surface pulling it <laughs> Wayne Florence, a marine invertebrate creator, says Glovis' work is very important in helping young children connect with the marine world. And that's it on the program today. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Layo Adegoki. Welcome back. And uh, that was a series of uh, news reports uh, dealing with the situations in Guinea. Somalia and uh, South Africa, Kenya, and uh, we want to uh, continue to follow uh, the situation, the political and security situation in uh, the West African state of Guinea. Here's another report uh, dealing uh, with uh, the suspension of uh, Guinea by the African Union, the 55-member continental organization uh, based in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Let's listen to this report. Hello, you're watching Eye on Africa here on France 24. I'm James Creedon. These are our headlines this evening. International pressure is mounting on Guinea's ruling military. The African Union has suspended the country after a coup d'etat last weekend. An ECOWAS delegation has also visited Conakry on Friday. We'll hear more from James Andre in Conakry. It's the Ethiopian New Year on Saturday, but celebrations are likely to be very low-key this year as war rages on in the north of the country. Also, hyperinflation. More on that coming up. 20 African artists from 13 different countries are in Abidjan for the annual Femoa Music Festival. It's the 13th edition of the event. We'll bring you more on that later on in the show. Thank you for watching. First... The West African bloc ECOWAS suspended Guinea. Now the African Union has done the same. All this after President Alpha Conde was arrested last weekend and special forces seized power in Conakry. ECOWAS sent in mediators on Friday who have uh, since departed. The bloc counts 15 members and uh, the foreign ministers of Nigeria, Ghana, Burkina Faso and Togo were part of that high-level delegation. Earlier I spoke to James Andre in Conakry about their visit.
It was a high-level delegation, he said, that was led by Ghana's Foreign Affairs Minister Shirley Ayorkor Bochwe. Now, the delegation landed here in Conakry around 10 a.m. The whole city was quite closed down with roads blocked and indeed a heavily armored convoy to go and get these ministers and bring them back to a hotel here in Central Conakry, which is called the Millennium Hotel. Now that hotel was completely closed down and there the delegation had to wait for about a couple of hours before Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya arrived in an armored vehicle accompanied by a group of his elite special forces, the men that indeed staged this coup here in Guinea and arrested Alpha Conde, the ousted president. Now, after a talk that lasted for a little over an hour, the whole delegation, plus uh, the uh, men of Mamadi uh, Dumbuya, moved on to the Special Forces headquarters. Now that is opposite uh, the People's Palace right in the center of Conakry. It is a heavily fortified military base and there the delegation were allowed to meet Alpha Conde who is being held in that heavily fortified building in central Conakry ever since he was arrested on Sunday. After that the delegation headed back to the airport around 5 p.m. and left. And, uh, James, one of the main objectives of the visit was to secure Alpha Conde's release. Uh, what happened in that regard? Was there any progress at all made? Now, indeed, uh, the delegation was allowed to meet Alpha Conde. Now, they didn't leave with Alpha Conde, but, uh, indeed, Shirley Ayorkor Botchway spoke to us just before she boarded her plane uh, back to uh, Ghana. This is what she had to say to France 24. Doing okay. We, we had a very uh, good conversation with him. He was able to talk to us, understand what we're saying. He responded very well. So both physically and mentally, I think he's, he's doing okay under the circumstances. We, we had a response also uh, from the junta itself, and uh, that was uh, by the voice of Fanta Sisse. Fanta Sisse is the acting foreign affairs minister, and she was the spokesperson today of uh, the junta in power here in Guinea. And we asked her, we asked Fanta Sisse, has the release of uh, Alpha Conde be secured today. Are you going to release him? This is what she told us. It is difficult to respond to this request immediately in these conditions, but yes, this is going to happen. They've repeatedly said, this is the father of the Ghanaian nation, father of all Ghanaians. So it seemed important. His freedom is also important, so this is likely going to happen. <laughs> Okay, so some attempt to, to move forward on those requests. And another, so another ECOWAS objective, uh, James, the, the so-called return of constitutional order. Yes, absolutely. Now, indeed, Shirley Ayrcourt-Botchway also spoke to us. Now, she said uh, that, indeed, there had been a discussion, a quality exchange, if you will, with uh, the uh, Colonel Mamadi Dumbuya. She said he was open. Uh, she said uh, that uh, he was frank in the way he addressed ECOWAS, and that was satisfactory. Basically, uh, she said that ECOWAS had engaged with uh, the new rulers of Guinea. She said it was an important country for 
breakaway West. And she said that now the delegation would return to speak to the heads of state uh, that are the leaders, in effect, of ECOWAS uh, so that they could decide what the next move would be. But quite clearly, it seems uh, there was a, an exchange, there was an engagement between uh, this regional bloc that's very important here, of course, in West Africa and the new rulers of Guinea. That was James Andre speaking to me a little bit earlier. Now, despite the diplomatic pressure, Guinean civil society has welcomed the military coup that brought down uh, Alpha Conde last Sunday. Many Guineans say that the people have been badly mistreated under his regime for decades. Earlier this week, some 70 political prisoners were released, including well-known figures opposed to a third term for Alpha Conde. Sarah Sacco and Malik Diakite sent us this report from Conakry. Tired but happy, Fonikli Mange is overjoyed to be reunited with his family. The activist was released on Tuesday evening by CNRD Putschis from the National Committee for Rally and Development. Opposed to Alpha Conde's third term, he was convicted of undermining state security during the October 2020 demonstrations. He served more than eight months in prison and fell ill behind bars. Now, once again free, he says he's ready to accompany the transition process promised by the CNRD. La démocratie ne va pas de soi. Democracy cannot be taken for granted. That is why we must fight every day for it. Otherwise, we risk losing it. We're going to open working sessions or meetings with the CNRD if necessary so that we can discuss the process of democratic transition quickly because it is necessary. Seventy-nine political prisoners were released by the CNRD on Tuesday evening. The gesture has given hope to civil society, which has continued to denounce Arthur Conde's authoritarian regime and the instrumentalization of justice. Bailo Barry, president of a human rights NGO, says the new authorities must keep their promises. It was not the fight against a man, but against a system. Today we can say that Mr. Alpha Conde is gone, thank God, but his men are still here. So one has to be careful. In the new configuration, some cannot be included in the new team. Otherwise, they will lead us to failure, and we don't want to relive the Dadi scenario in the Republic of Guinea. As the historic opposition leader, Selu Dalendiello, he said he's both relieved and worried for the future of Guinea. To Ethiopia next, where it's the new year as of Saturday, Africa's second most populous country adheres to a 13-month calendar that begins in September. It runs seven to eight years behind the Gregorian calendar, so Saturday will be the first day of 2014 for Ethiopians. Now, celebrations are usually full of feasting, song and dance, as you'd expect, but this year a cloud hangs over festivities, in particular for ethnic Tigrayans. The economy is also in turmoil, with inflation in excess of 30% last month for food. At this market in Addis Ababa, it's not the crowd you'd expect to see, just hours away from the start of the Ethiopian New Year. Many here aren't in the mood for a party. For almost a year now, war has raged across the country's north, and that has had dire consequences on the nation's economy, as well as an impact on Ethiopians' purchasing power. The 
According to the United Nations, war in the Tigray has cost the country some $1 billion. Fighting has also disrupted supplies, and this business owner is worried. The government has continued its warlike rhetoric, calling for the destruction of Tigrayan rebels. But many of the people doing their New Year's shopping here only want one thing, peace. But peace doesn't seem to be a priority for either side. In his New Year's message, the head of the Tigray People's Liberation Front told his followers they wouldn't rest until their enemies are destroyed. Now, it's been a major event in the cultural calendar for West Africa and beyond since its launch in 2008. FEMUA is taking place in Abidjan, the city known for its eclectic nightlife, welcomes artists from across the continent every year for FEMUA. This year, there's a determination to get back to proper festive form after the pandemic. Our journalists in Abidjan have been talking to the founders and the artists. Today, young people are the most reluctant to get vaccinated. So during this festival, we will promote vaccination. We will first of all try to approach young people, tell them that we can live with this virus if we use the available tools. That's why FEMUA is the first sub-Saharan cultural event to propose vaccination centers on site so that those who are still hesitant can get their shot. This has been a tough time for everyone, but we tried to adapt. We learned how to organize events with safety measures. But now, coming back on this big stage during FEMUA, I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to it and can't wait to share this moment with this new great public of Abidjan. And we'll leave you with the, some music from Zahara, one of uh, the performers who is in Abidjan, having uh, flown in from South Africa for uh, the Femme Festival. This song is Umfazi, featuring Kirk Olum. Thanks for watching Iron Africa. The United States has conducted an operation that killed Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. We know how to go after terrorists and to kill them. But one thing we haven't worked on is how do we prevent terrorists from becoming terrorists. It's a disaster geopolitical major. And look what it did. We're still fighting. I mean, we've got troops over there. People are still dying. What we did do is we gave rise to Mr. El-Zakari and ISIS. For the next episode, tune in tomorrow at the same time and watch our full program on Saturday, September 11th. Welcome back. And uh, we heard um, additional reports on the situation in Guinea as well as the uh, Ethiopia uh, New Year and uh, a music festival uh, taking place 
in uh, Senegal. And uh, we'll take a break, and uh, we'll be back with our concluding segment of the Pan-African Journal.
and uh, the music of uh, Funkadelic uh, from the Maggot Brain uh, album from uh, 1971. Some 50 years ago, our music still sounds very fresh, creative, innovative, and energetic. And uh, we're going to now go into another series of news reports and features on the African continent and the international community. And uh, this is from uh, CGTN uh, from earlier today. Uh, Let's listen in. This is CGTN, China Global Television Network. Regional Bloc ECOWAS envoys meet Guinea's junta and ousted president to discuss coup aftermath. The U.S. remembers 9-11 terror attack victims as well as wars that followed. And the U.N.'s peacekeeping chief and South Sudanese president meet to discuss stalled peace process in Juba. Hello and welcome. You're watching Africa Live. We're coming to live from Nairobi, I'm Hannah Vivier. Here are more news stories making headlines sour. In business news, Nigeria's cooking gas prices surged by over 80% in the last eight months. And in your sport, FIBA Africa launches inaugural basketball youth camp in Nairobi. We begin this news hour in Guinea, where deposed leader Alpha Conde, who has been detained by soldiers since last week's coup, is reported to be in good health. That's according to ECOWAS envoys on a mission to that country. ECOWAS suspended Guinea's membership to the 15-member bloc earlier this week, but stopped short of imposing further sanctions. CDTN's Joy Kuruki Juma reports. A delegation from the economic community of West African states has been in Conakry to iron out pressing matters with Guinea's coup leaders. The meeting followed diplomatic pressure mounted on the ruling military junta. The ECOWAS mission's arrival coincided with the announcement by the African Union to suspend Guinea's membership. We had a very productive exchange. We also had the opportunity to meet with the former president, Alpha Conde, and we also had discussions with him. But as it was the heads of state who mandated us to come on this mission, we will report back to them on the results of our mission. The ECOWAS mission says a near two-hour discussion with junta leader, Lieutenant Colonel Mamadi Dumbuye, was satisfactory. The key priority of this mission was to find out the fate of deposed leader Alpha Conde. On Wednesday, ECOWAS called for Conde's immediate and unconditional release. It also called for the immediate return to constitutional order. Another ECOWAS mission is expected in Guinea soon to discuss the country's political transition. Joy Kiruki Juma, CGTN. Well, Sunday marks the week since the coup that toppled President Alpha Conde. The international community has expressed concern about the developments there and demands a return to civilian rule and the unconditional release of ousted President Conde. Our reporter, Deje Cannon, met with Guinean people in Kanaku to get their views about the coup and how it has affected their day-to-day lives. 
the scenes of jubilation in Conakry following the overthrow of Alpha Conde show how much the Guinean people longed for a change in the way power was managed in this poor West African country. Today, many Guineans continue to praise the action of the military in bringing an end to President Conde's regime. No clashes or demonstrations have been reported against the coup and its leaders so far. But what the Guineans themselves say about this turn of event in their country? Last Sunday, we had gunshots at the 8th November Bridge, and afterwards, we saw the special forces passing by to deliver Guinea. At 11 a.m., we heard that President Alpha Conde was arrested. The whole of Guinea danced following the arrest of President Conde. The young people cheered because the people have suffered too much from corruption. We hope that the youth will have jobs now. I support the military coup in Guinea because we have been suffering for 10 years. My friends who are here also support the military in their new function. I think that in six months or a year, they will organize elections to hand over power to civilians. I have hope that things will change. I have hope because Colonel Mamadi Dombuya knows our suffering. I can't appreciate this coup because I don't know what's going on in the army. What we can say is that the people are suffering. I leave my house every morning to come to work here. But in reality, we must recognize that nothing is moving in the country. The youth are suffering. Among the sectors most affected by the coup in Guinea are land and air transport. Road transporters are protesting the closure of Guinea's borders with some neighboring countries blocking hundreds of trucks and light vehicles used to cross border traffic. Since last Sunday, living Conakry for the interior of the country has become a real titanic struggle because there are roadblocks everywhere. The price of fuel went up and they told us to be patient, that the roadblocks would be removed. But since the coup d'etat, the roadblocks have returned and the soldiers at the roadblocks don't speak well to us. No respect. It must be said that the coup d'etat last Sunday has greatly reduced our business. The majority of Guineans we met here in Conakry welcomed the military coup that took place last Sunday. But the question people are asking here in Conakry is whether the coming of the junta to power can put an end to corruption, unemployment, nepotism and the high cost of living attributed to the regime of the overthrown president Alpha Conde. Desiree Cano, CGTN, Conakry, Guinea. Meanwhile, a Guinean opposition leader who left the country 10 months ago has returned almost a week after special forces overthrew President Conde. Sidi Atouri, leader of the Union of Republican Forces Party, returned home to a hero's welcome. Touré moved to Paris after alleged threats from Conde and the arrest of several of his critics. In a speech at his party's headquarters, Touré called for the release of prisoners of conscience and for Conde's human rights to also be respected. We are at a crossroads and we have to answer clearly the questions about the place to be given to human dignity in the face of the many victims to whom we must pay tribute and the prisoners of conscience who are still detained. They must be released. 
I said they must be released, just as it is important to ensure the physical integrity and human rights of the former president, Alpha Conde, even though he has striven to trample on his compatriots for more than a decade. Well, on to other news that's making headlines this hour. Six moments of silence were held in New York City, Washington, D.C., and Shanksville, Pennsylvania, to mark the moments when two planes crashed into the Twin Towers and took away nearly 3,000 lives 20 years ago. But 20 years after the terrorist attacks of September 2011, the war on terror grinds along, frustrating, costly, and inconclusive in many ways. Nathan King reports from Ground Zero. It's a tradition marking the tragic timing of that fateful day. Names read of those killed on 9-11. And silence marking the moments. The first plane hit the North Tower in New York, then the Pentagon, the South Tower, the down plane in Pennsylvania, and when the two towers fell. <laughs> it was a day America's sense of security was shaken. But this year, it's not the minutes or the hours of that day from 20 years ago, but the realization that the wars the U.S. unleashed following the terror attacks have ended in failure. I joined the Army about two and a half years ago. Among the visitors to this hallowed ground, David Hepler, a U.S. Army recruit who was unable to deploy to Afghanistan due to COVID-19. He was just starting school 20 years ago and questions what Washington has learned from the attacks of 9-11. Depressing, it kind of draws you in. It, like, it doesn't allow you to see the bottom of that pit, which just leaves you like, aching for more, but at the same time, like, with, like, I, I look at the waters, and it kind of reminds me of just like this, it kind of represents the tears of those who have fallen, and the friends and families who have fallen like, with them, because everybody's hit, everybody's hit. From all four corners of the world, you have like all four corners just pouring water. So it's very representative. The U.S. president agrees, vowing not to sacrifice any more young men like David Hepler or pass on America's longest war to another president. Biden abruptly pulled the U.S. out of Afghanistan. The president attended all three sites this year, remembering the nearly 3,000 dead and recalling the fleeting unity that the United States experienced in the immediate aftermath of those attacks. We also saw something all too rare, a true sense of national unity, unity and resilience, the capacity to recover and repair in the face of trauma, unity and service, the 9-11 generation stepping up to serve and protect in the face of terror, to get those terrorists who were responsible, to show everyone seeking to do harm to America that we will hunt you down and we will make you pay. That will never stop. Today, tomorrow, ever, for protecting America. That sense of unity that was defined here in New York after the 9-11 attacks has long since gone. Foreign wars may be ending, but the domestic political war here in the United States is raging like never before. Domestic priorities now seem to be taking priority over an ill-defined war against terrorism. History will be the judge of whether the U.S. reactions to the devastation of the 9-11 attacks was worth it. Nathan King, CGTN, Ground Zero in New York City.
9-11 a reshaped U.S. foreign policy towards the Islamic world. Declaring a war in terror, the U.S. invaded Afghanistan in October of 2001 with the stated goal of eliminating al-Qaeda. NATO forces also overthrew the Taliban and installed a new government. The violence that followed reshaped the lives of Afghans still living in uncertain times after the U.S. withdrawal. Abdul Hadi Darius has more from Kabul. Twenty years later and with at least two trillion dollars spent by the U.S., this is Afghanistan, a country left in ruin, an economy that's on the brink of collapse. For most of us, nothing much has changed in the last 20 years to improve the quality of their lives. According to the UNDP's 2020 Human Development Report, which measures standards of living, Afghanistan has a low human development status, placing 169 out of 189 countries and territories. For Abdul Mubina Kabbalah in Kabul, the occupation did not benefit the country's poor. With most government funds frozen and foreign aid suspended, he doubts things will change. Nothing has changed for the common people because only lists were taken for aid. Nothing was done. The poor people of Afghanistan didn't receive any support. Aside from the devastation and instability wrought by years of conflict, many blame corruption for Afghanistan's current state. To be really honest and frankly, uh, the, in the previous government, there were a few chances for those people who were not having the particular relationships and, uh, you know, any, you know, all people are in picture and all know that there were a few chances to get the positions. There were the nepotism, cronism and favoritism. But the past 20 years were not without gains. More opportunities for women and children paved the way for an educated and skilled generation. Nearly two decades later, uh, I was able to uh, go back to my village, uh, which I left uh, in 2001 or 2. Um, I really saw some changes, some positive developments in my village, in that uh, rural area. Uh, I found people are having uh, access at least to the solar electricity. Uh, there were clinics, there were schools, uh, female students were there, and I, I saw the college there. Uh, girls were pursuing their education uh, to 14 years. Generations of Afghans will remember the past 20 years for different reasons. Some will see it as America's failed war, while others will consider it as a missed opportunity to improve the lives of Afghans. But the most pressing is that how Kabul's new government will change a country whose future is uncertain. Abdul Hadi Dariz, CGTN, Kabul. Well, CGTN's Zmarilai Abbasan is in Kabul and joins us live now for an update on developments in Afghanistan. Zmarilai, good to see you. The Taliban group raising their flag over the Afghan presidential palace in a brief ceremony on Saturday. The same day the U.S. and the world were marking the 20th anniversary of the September 11 attacks. Zmarilai, what was the significance of this action by the Taliban?
Hello, Hannah. Well, it's not important anymore for the people of Afghanistan, either for the Taliban, what was 9-11, and they are just going ahead, and the Taliban have already formed their interim government, and they will soon appoint the rest of the cabinet members of the Taliban. Yet there are still reactions to the government of uh, Taliban, which is uh, take care government of them, and all of the members belong to the Taliban. Uh, today we had several voices heard in uh, different parts of the country. In Nangrahar, after uh, Kabul uh, uh, University protest, the pro-Taliban uh, gathering, there was a, a rally uh, who were supporting the Taliban and the rule of law and Islamic Sharia that the Taliban want to impose on the country. And the uh, women who were gathered with hijab, and it was some, uh, some kind of different, a normal Afghan hijab. And the women and girls were saying they are agree with the uh, rules of the Taliban and under Islamic Sharia. But their demands were education and jobs. On the other hand, uh, Kabul also witnessed a gathering, uh, a group of youth, uh, uh, included uh, women and also men were uh, also discussing the government of the Taliban and the future of the youth. They were demanding the, rule of the, the role of the youth in the uh, cabinet and said there is none of them because uh, they were struggling for years and now they are ready to serve the country. And if the Taliban doesn't hear their voice, then they have to flee the country because they will have no opportunity inside the country. On the other hand, there was another rally uh, expected in Kabul by the doctors and nurses and also the uh, students of uh, uh, medical uh, faculty of Kabul, but it was prevented by the Taliban. Many believe in the country that the Taliban are now uh, seeking uh, rallies. If this is pro-Taliban rally, that's fair. If not, they will not permit it. So this is another concern. On the other hand, uh, there is still inauguration uh, preparation by the Taliban. Uh, we have been uh, receiving reports from the Ministry of Interior that they will be off for at least three days, and that's why it's a sign of the uh, uh, very uh, fast preparation for the inauguration ceremony. Many countries are invited, yet it's not clear which country will uh, join uh, the inauguration ceremony. And at the end, uh, many of the governmental offices and uh, uh, administration offices are yet closed or they are operating very weakly. Minister of uh, Finance just announced that the male workers can join, but the female should wait for the correct time they see uh, it as a secure environment. While the Taliban assure all the female of the country that there would be a, a, a secure environment for the women under Islamic Sharia, and they will be able to go to their schools and education centers and to their jobs, but there might be some regulations. Yet, these regulations are awaited in all over the country. Anna? Thank you so much for that. Tomorrow, we're going to continue on that topic of women and leadership within Afghanistan now. Well, the exclusion of women from leadership positions by the Taliban in Afghanistan has led to protests in the country. This has generated heated debate over women and their place in society, particularly in Afghanistan. Largely Muslim countries have had a track record of appointing women to elected positions in high office, putting the Taliban on the spot over their reluctance to bring women on board. Well, for more on this, we're joined by Habiba 
Sarabi, a former Afghan negotiator and deputy head of the High Peace Council and former governor. She's now based in Izmir, Turkey, and joins us via Skype. Thank you so much for joining us, Habiba. Well, why does the Taliban appear to be reluctant to accept and appoint women to positions of leadership? Yet before they took over, there were women in position, who, in high-level positions in uh, the Afghani government. Thank you very much, Hina. Uh, thank you for having me. Uh, unfortunately, this is the, uh, the thought and ideology of the Taliban, that they always don't care about women's rights. Their ideology and their thought is very extreme. And all uh, uh, the, in the past, uh, whenever there was a meeting, there was a conference or anything, Taliban didn't have any uh, women representative among themselves that for one year we had this negotiation in Doha, uh, Qatar, but there was no any single woman among uh, the delegation from Taliban side. They don't believe the women's rights and human rights. Um, however, there are many Muslim countries that uh, uh, the woman has uh, the high position uh, um, uh, and also they are a part of this, uh, the community and society to work uh, side by side by their uh, male uh, member of the country in any any type of any uh, position, but unfortunately their uh, definition and their interpretation from Islam is very extreme, and so that's why they don't believe to that, and uh, they they lack them to have any women on the high position. Well, as you've mentioned, Habiba, there have been women who've held public office in other Muslim countries. And one of the things that the Taliban has been reported saying repeatedly is that they're going to treat women according to Islamic law. What, how much of this has got to do with religion and how much of this is, is as you say, just the stance of the Taliban themselves? So this is the stand of Taliban, unfortunately. It's not belong to religion. Uh, at the beginning of Islam, we had women that, uh, for example, uh, Khadija al-Kubra, the wife of Ramat Muhammad, uh, peace upon him, and uh, that she was the one that uh, funding all the uh, uh, the work that uh, Prophet Muhammad did for uh, for his campaign to uh, to Islam, and also the the Hazrat. Uh, Aisha, uh, that uh, she was, uh, uh, I mean, uh, taken part with the, the Ghazwa. And also uh, the mayor of Medina, that she was uh, uh, appointed by Omar Farouk. So these, uh, th- these are the very, very good example from the beginning of Islam. And after that, uh, I mean, uh, through the, all the Islamic country, we cannot see that such a, a extreme ideology. But uh, their interpretation is quite different. Uh, so they have to see uh, an, uh, some example from the other country. We can see it in, uh, around the world and all the other Muslim countries that women uh, can work and uh, to take part in the uh, 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 progress and development of their country. So we were on the back of everything that you've said and also just seeing what's unfolding in Afghanistan, what do you think the future holds for women in Afghanistan under the new Taliban dispensation? If the, the things can be I mean, going like, uh, like today, it's, I cannot uh, see a, a good uh, future for Afghan women. 
you know that Afghan women had uh, made a reaction and they had uh, protested and they had uh, uh, so many, uh, I mean, uh, around the country, different part of the country, they had protested that why they are not a, a part of the new government and also why they, uh, they are uh, banded from the going to school, high school and also university and they cannot go to the job. That's why uh, Afghan women uh, protested and made reaction. Unfortunately, they uh, oppressed uh, the voice of, of women in, in Afghanistan. The, now they are forbidden to do any protest. Uh, so if things going like this, it's, uh, I cannot see the future very well. And I hope that uh, women around the world and all the uh, Muslim uh, world can, uh, uh, can uh, share the voice of Afghan women uh, and the Muslim country that uh, Islam is not something that Taliban are interpreting from that. Thank you so much for your input, Habiba Habiba Sarabi, former Afghan negotiator, deputy of High Peace Council, and former governor, and she's based in Izmir, Turkey. Well, we head over to Somalia now, where a lawmaker who became the country's first female foreign minister is now trying to prove gender stereotypes wrong by running for the presidency. CTN's Mohamed Abubakar has a story. Fauzia Yusuf Adam is a widow and a mother of three. She believes her campaign for the presidency is worthwhile and could break down the barriers for other women in Somalia. Somalia is historically known to be a conservative Muslim nation. Women have been historically marginalized in the Horn of African nation. I think it's about time to fight for our rights as citizens, as women, and as politicians, and try to solve the problems this country is facing for the past 30 years. There was mayhem in this country for the past uh, 30 years. Atrocities committed are not comparable to anywhere else. Young people are dying like flies, killing each other, exploding themselves. Uh, killing other people, um, unemployment, uh, very poor qu educational quality, quality in education, health, and everything else. Like many others across Somalia, Fauzia says she has watched as insecurity weakened the country's foundations. She believes her gender could be an asset in helping Somalia emerge from the years of deadly violence marked by attacks from Al-Qaeda-linked group Al-Shabaab. I thought, as a woman, maybe this country needs the leadership of a woman to bring peace and stability, political stability into this country. That's why I decided to run for president at this time. The coronavirus pandemic has made Fauzia's presidential campaign a low-profile one. She says she is different from other presidential candidates as she takes the coronavirus pandemic seriously. Her husband died of COVID-19. She now struggles to raise three young children and earns money by doing laundry when she can. We cannot deal with, with, with this phenomenon COVID, which is affecting almost everywhere in Somalia, like it's affecting everywhere in the world. It damages us. It's one of our priorities. Health is one of our priorities. We've received some of these vaccinations. And I personally took my two vaccinations. Many people did, but many poor people in the camps, the IDPs, the very poor, vulnerable people, 
have that, not, do not have that chance. Fauzia first entered politics in her hometown of Hargeisa in Somaliland years ago, but fled to Mogadishu as local politicians there reportedly saw her as a threat. She later started a political party, the National Democratic Party. Years later, Fauzia rose to some of the country's highest offices, including foreign minister and deputy prime minister. If elected as Somalia's president, Fauzia says she will help those displaced in camps and affected by COVID-19, especially women. Mohamed Abubakar, CGTN. Well, it's time now for a show break, but here's still what to come on Africa Live. UN peacekeeping chief and South Sudanese president meet to discuss the stalled peace process in Juba. And a court ruling ordering a reburial of Zimbabwe's former president stirs controversy. Africa is a continent of diversity, with varied climates and enchanting geography, and a people so distinct, but with a shared enduring spirit. We are at the heart of the continent, to bring you the untold stories. Let's have a look. We celebrate Africa as it shapes its own destiny. Africa Live. Find your voice. Welcome back. You're watching Africa Live. We head over to South Africa, where the country's Health Products Authority, which is the country's health regulator, has approved Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine for use on children aged 12 and older. CGTN's Angela Coppola has the details. The regulator said the decision came after a review of updated safety and efficacy information that the manufacturer had submitted in March this year. The decision is important because South Africa has a large youth population, with some 28% of that population of 59 million people under the age of 15. The details of when the vaccine will become available to 12-year-olds and older hasn't been published yet, but if the health authorities follow the process for other age groups, the country's electronic registration system will be opened up for parents to register their 12 to 17-year-olds. Where the vaccination gets administered becomes a logistical challenge though, and whether the parents need to be present also hasn't been discussed yet. That decision comes on the same day that South African authorities announced a pediatric clinical trial of Chinese manufacturer Sinovac's biotech coronavirus vaccine in the country. The study plans to enroll 14,000 kids aged between 6 months and 17 years old in South Africa, Chile, the Philippines, Malaysia and Kenya. The first child had the vaccine or placebo administered on Friday as part of that trial. I'm Angelo Coppola for CGTN in Johannesburg, South Africa. The UN peacekeeping chief and the president of South Sudan have wrapped up their meeting in Juba. Jean-Pierre Lacroix was in South Sudan to help breathe life into stagnating peace process. Nautula Savalala has more. It's been three years since worrying factions in South Sudan signed a peace deal to end a long and bloody civil war. But the government is still struggling to fully implement the agreement and deliver the peace and development it promised its people. 
UN peacekeeping chief Jean-Pierre Lacroix came to Juba to meet South Sudanese President Salva Kiir and key cabinet ministers. Topping the agenda of their talks was politics, security and progress made so far in the peace process. The President shared ideas on issues related to peace implementation as well as to the issues of ABA, the future of uh, UNISPA forces in ABA, and, uh, and I think uh, the change of forces, and I think there was a meeting of mind uh, between the President representing the government of the Republic of South Sudan and, and the United Nations team. The graduation and deployment of unified forces has been repeatedly delayed in South Sudan and soldiers are struggling to survive in military sites without basic support, including food and shelter. Reform of the security sector as required by the peace agreement remains a challenge for the country. Uh, as far as uh, the UN is concerned, uh, we can certainly help uh, in trying to uh, um, support the uh, armed forces here uh, to, in their efforts to make sure that uh, certain uh, guarantees and uh, certain benchmarks uh, can, be, uh, can, can be achieved. I'm thinking in particular of everything that has to do with uh, managing weapons and ammunition. I know that uh, uh, it is seen by members of the Security Council as an important uh, element in this. But again, I repeat that uh, this is very much the issue of the arms embargo is very much in the hands of the Security Council. South Sudan's Defense Minister has reiterated the need to finalize security arrangements. These include reaching agreements on the command structure of armed forces, which is critical to stabilizing and improving the lives of communities across the country. This peace agreement is really in dire need of uh, revamping, uh, it's in dire need of resources, uh, and uh, it's in dire need of really more attention so that it is implemented. According to the UN peacekeeping chief, South Sudan remains high on the agenda of the United Nations. The global body is committed to supporting the South Sudanese in their journey from war towards peace and development. Noktula Shabalala, CGTN. A court ruling ordering the exhumation and reburial of Zimbabwe's former President Robert Mugabe at a shrine reserved for liberation war heroes is stirring controversy in the country. Some citizens say he should remain buried at his rural home. From Harare, here's Rai Mokotia with more. After a row over where to bury him, Robert Mugabe was laid to rest in his rural homestead in Zimba in a low-key ceremony attended by close family and friends in September 2019. In May this year, nearly two years later, traditional chiefs from his home area ruled it an improper burial, fined his widow and ordered his exhumation and reburial at the National Heroes Shrine. A magistrate has thrown out a challenge filed by Mugabe's three children to have the ruling overturned. I think it is unnecessary to have the reburial since a punishment and fine was already imposed. They should just leave him where he is. 
A person should be buried where they wish. If they exhume him, will it not be defying his last wishes? I don't think it makes sense to do this because it will require more resources to have the reburial. Yet, there are other pressing needs. Why did they allow the burial in Zimba in the first place? If he was really a hero, they should have made sure he was buried at the hero's shrine when he died. He is a very respected person. We can't treat him this way, even culturally. By now the corpse has already decomposed, so why would they want to move it? Why has it taken them this long to do this? It's too late now. Barring an appeal, the execution of the exhumation order will be the next step. Leo Mugabe, a nephew to the former president, told me that the family will call a press conference later on Saturday to issue their response to the ruling. Meanwhile, the government has distanced itself from the case. The Ministry of Information tweeted on Friday that neither the government nor President Emerson Mnangagwa were involved in any way in this case and were therefore observing as onlookers like everyone else as it unfolds. The lawyer who represented Mugabe's children has indicated that the former First Lady had separately sought a review of the traditional court's ruling. That case is due to be heard later this month. Farai Mwakutuya, CGTN, Harare, Zimbabwe. We head over to Egypt now where terror attacks over the years have severely affected the country's tourism industry. The Egyptian government now says that it plans to invest more than 540 million U.S. dollars in the sector, a sign that tourism could be on the recovery path. Gerardo Amorohi with the details. Tourism in Egypt has been recovering slowly in the second half of 2021. In September, the nation's Tourism and Antiquities Ministry said hotel occupancy rates reached 70% in Red Sea resort cities, up from 43% in June. That follows the lifting of travel restrictions by some European countries and after Russia ended a six-year-long ban on flights to Egypt. As a tour guide who speaks Russian, we have been greatly affected since the 2015 Russian plane crash. It is by far the worst incident that happened which concerned Egypt. COVID-19 was global. It made the situation worse. We had no work at all. We looked for alternatives and we have managed to expand the Ukrainian market and other Eastern European countries which made up for part of the drop in tourism revenue. In recent months, the Egyptian government has been promoting the country as a tourist destination. It has introduced electronic visas for the first time. Almost all fees for flight services at Egyptian airports have been reduced or waived. Moreover, all workers in the tourism sector have been vaccinated and health preventive measures have been imposed. There are a lot of measures in place. As you can see, we're all wearing masks. Um, I've been vaccinated, as have many Egyptians have had the vaccine as well. Um, and our travel was, was conducted with international PCR tests as well. So I feel very safe traveling to Egypt. There was a 92% drop in tourism revenues after the COVID-19 pandemic hit Egypt. This year, the country is expecting to rake in up to 7 billion U.S. dollars in tourism revenues as the sector recovers. That's about 54% of 2019's 13 billion revenue. Tour operators, though, are still worried as their debts have piled.
Unless the sector fully recovers, they say they could face a financial crisis. We paid monthly salaries of about $64,000 every month. Later it went down to half this amount. We took loans from the state to pay the salaries. And until now we haven't begun paying our debts. Tourism must return to normal rates for at least three years to cover these debts. The sector is starting to recover. It won't be back to normal until we learn how to coexist with the pandemic. From the 2011 uprising, terrorist attacks that followed it, the 2015 Russian plane crash and finally the global pandemic, Egypt's tourism industry has been getting one hard blow after the other for the past 10 years. As tourists' numbers picks up, Egypt is expanding its investments in this industry to maximize revenues in the coming years. Adel Mahoui, CGTN, Cairo. Well, business news still to come here on Africa Live, including... Nigeria's cooking gas prices surged by over 80% in the last eight months. And Tanzanian companies losing out on major crude oil pipeline projects. It's taken me completely out of my depth, but at the same time it's exciting. It's new, it's different, it's a challenge. It's really exciting. Now to business news. Tanzanian companies may be losing out on major crude oil pipeline project connecting oil fields in Hoima and western Uganda, the coastal port town of Tanga. That's according to Tanzania's Energy Authority, which says that over 2,000 Ugandan companies are bidding for construction contracts compared to a much smaller number from south of the border. With the details, you see it here Daniel Kicho. A database of local businesses in the energy sector has revealed that Tanzanian companies are cautious about bidding for big oil and gas construction contracts. The Energy and Water Utility Regulatory Regulation Authority, Awura, says that by July this year, only 779 local companies had been listed in the Awura database and only those registers will have the opportunity to participate in the Uganda oil pipeline construction. Officials at the agency have called on local companies to seize such opportunities. Although negotiations for the East African crude oil pipeline started in 2017, it has taken close to three years to begin construction due to numerous contentious issues to resolve. Construction of the $3.5 billion pipeline is now expected to start following completion of paperwork by government negotiation teams from both Tanzania and Uganda. Data from analytics firm Global Data projected Uganda will produce first oil as early as 2025. According to the Tanzanian government, 
about 80% of the 1,445-kilometer-long pipeline will run through Tanzania and create more than 18,000 job opportunities for locals. Daniel Kijo, CGTN, Dar es Salaam, Tanzania. Over to Nigeria now, where the price of liquefied petroleum gas has surged by over 80% in the last eight months. The increase is forcing people in Nigeria to seek alternatives like firewood and charcoal. But as CGTN's Kelechi Mekelam reports, health and environmental experts worry that such options are hazardous to people's health and the environment. It's almost dinner time at the Danjuma home, and 42-year-old mother of five, Abigail Danjuma, struggles to flame up the firewood for her cooking, an alternative to which she's resorted owing to the soaring Welcome back, and uh, that was a series of reports uh, from Africa Live on uh, various developments uh, taking place across the continent and indeed the world, uh, updates on uh, Afghanistan, uh, the United States, and uh, other uh, geopolitical regions of the world. And that's going to uh, conclude uh, the Pan-African Journal, uh, Worldwide Radio Broadcast, a special edition of our program for Sunday, September 12th, 2021. Uh, we've been broadcasting live from our studios in uh, downtown Detroit. And uh, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for uh, tuning in uh, once again uh, to another edition uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to have access to our program, all you need to do is go uh, to our website at the Pan-African Radio Network, and uh, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, if you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to be closing out uh, with the music of uh, Johnny Griffith and Eddie Davis and uh, from the album entitled The Tenor Scene. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.
With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.